Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 61. For me, this is a special episode. It's special because it's a conversation with someone who I love dearly, and although I've never met her in person, she's part of my heart. If you already know Ivea Moore, you'll know that she's deeply kind, caring, and humble. Knowing her is one of life's precious treasures, and she touches the hearts of everyone she meets. As well as being just the sweetest person and an integral part of the nature journaling community, she's also a botanist with many years of experience working in the field of restoration. In our conversation, Ivea talks about her restoration work and how nature journaling has been the perfect tool for helping record information in the field. Let's listen. Ivea, thank you so much for being here with me for the podcast. You are one very, very special, precious person in my life, and it's a real joy to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here with you. You're one of you're you're just you're one of my lights. What you're one of the people who make me like when I first met Jack. What drew me to him was his kindness, and I feel the same way with you. Like what draws me to you is your kindness and your genuineness. So I'm I feel really honored I get to chat with you. I feel the same about you. You're just you have so much kindness inside you, and it just comes through in everything you do, Ivea. So I wonder if, on the podcast, I always go back and I ask people about nature, early nature experiences, and I wonder about nature in your early life. Was nature part of your life from the beginning? From pretty early. I was lucky. Um, I had had this wonderful great-grandmother who lived up in the northern United States, up in Washington State, kind kind of in the area that's between the countryside and the woods, kind of out there. And, um, and she, well, she lived on a road called Wildwood. So already the name was just, wow. <laughs> you know, you're going on an adventure when you go out here. Um, and her backyard had a river, the, um, the Southern Fork of the Chehalis River running through it. So, so I was lucky. I got to go there every single summertime, um, from an early age. And even if it was only for a few days at a time, um, just getting to play and explore the river. And I think more than anything, though, it was my relationship with her uh, Mm. because she was one of, I guess you could say, like, she's always been, like when when you think of who do you want to be when you grow up, I always wanted to be like my Nana um, because she was deeply, deeply kind to everybody. And, and the sort of person you couldn't imagine thinking or saying anything mean um, and very humble was the big thing about her. And so I think that because I loved her so much, I associated nature with her. Mm. And that's why, why I loved nature so much. Do you think she lived there because she wanted to be close to nature? Was nature a big part of her life as well? I feel like it was. Um, I was told that she actually was born in that house. Oh, wow. Um, so her, her parents, um, I think they might have been German settlers. I'm not sure, but their last name was Dietering. And so... 
they built that place and then they had their six kids and she was the youngest. And by the time, um, but by the time, you know, I, I came along, she had herself and two sisters left and she was the one who lived there. And I know that she loves nature, but also I think that it was, it was the idea of just coming back to that place at the end of her career um, mm. before, before all of that. That's a really special story and a really special connection. And I think that those relationships that we have in early years with very special people that we look up to, they, they last a lifetime, don't they? They stay inside us. They do. She's still, aside from my son, she's still my favorite person in the mm. entire world. Mm. I miss her. I miss her a lot. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder about the story of how you came to nature journaling. How did it begin for you? So um, it, it kind of began in two ways. Um, my godmother is or was a teacher librarian in the school system. And so she was always getting her hands on new books and looking out for them. And, and whenever she sees a book that, you know, somebody she cares about would be interested in, she always latches onto that. And so at some point she came across John Muir Laws's um, guide to drawing and nature journaling. Um, and so she got that one. She invited him to come to her, her kids. They, um, she, she worked kind of in the school district where, with kids who had either come out of juvie or who were pregnant teens, ones who couldn't go into the regular school system because the regular school system hadn't, hadn't succeeded or hadn't done enough with them. And so she would have guest speakers come in and she would write grants. And so she had Jack come in to work with her kids at one point and the kids, were so excited that they didn't want to come inside afterwards. And so she got him to sign the book and she said, next time he comes, I want you to meet him. And so she was telling me about this guy. And so that was, that was one. The other one is that um, my friend, Marley Pfeiffer, he and I have known each other since 2006. Um, we went to UC Santa Cruz together. And so I'd been seeing him talking more about nature journaling on his Facebook page. And I'm like, Oh, what's this nature journaling stuff. And so I went to one of his workshops. Um, and so that's how I got, interested in that was just the two of them and um what made me stay was that i went to one of jack's workshops this one time i was shy um i didn't have the watercolors i was still like doing the colored pencils and everything and and he was teaching about the the new color wheel where it was all about you know cyan magenta and and yellow instead of the normal ones and not only just like his not only was my mind blown by by just this idea that the things I thought of as primary colors were not actually the primary colors, but also just his energy. Like he would start talking about something and he'd go, but wait, there's more. <laughs> and, and, I, and I spent the entire time just like feeling happy. And and, and then um, when I was leaving his class, I had to leave a little bit early to get my son and I waved goodbye and he was in the middle of teaching, but he still took the time to wave goodbye. And because he was kind and kind enough to even just acknowledge me when I was leaving, I just wanted to be around him because of that and so so that's how I got interested in nature journaling officially but I started doing more hands-on nature stuff starting when I was about 13 um, but it took me years before I actually learned about nature journaling. Tell me about that about your 13 year old Ivea and the and the nature connection that started there. So okay so I've been um, I had this really cool experience um, the summer before my godmother had seen this thing in the newspaper that was all about a thing called Project Courage. And it was this two-week program with the Bay Area Girls Center 
where girls who were either going into seventh grade or into eighth grade, like middle school girls, were going out into nature for two weeks and we would do backpacking for five days, then hanging out at this place called Bullfrog Pond for another five days, um, and then doing kayaking um, up to Mollus Bay for another four. And so it was just, it was kind of, it, it was intense and it was magic. And I just loved being able to be out there in the nature. And so afterwards, they have us come in to do um, to do different work around the office and volunteer. And so we were stuffing envelopes. And my mentor had been noticing how much I love the nature. And she said, hey, so I heard about this program. Um, they're out at Chrissy Field, which is this place kind of in the northern part of San Francisco. And they're doing a restoration project and they need volunteers. Um, and here's a flyer in case you're interested. So I dragged my parents out there. Um, and I started doing the restoration work with them as a volunteer. And I was like, this is my this is my calling. This is where I'm meant to be. Oh wow! And then that led to a whole bunch of other internships and stuff over the period. But that's where I realized that that was where I was meant to be, and that's where I fell in love with working hands-on in nature. That's amazing. So restoration work has been part of your story for a really long time. I love that. I love hearing about that. Can you talk a little bit more about restoration work and what it involves for you? Absolutely. Okay, I'll begin with a little bit about Chrissy Field. Um, so Chrissy Field, about 200, 300 years ago, was a marsh, just a marsh. Um, and there were, I believe that where I live is Ramaytush land, part of the Olone. And so they, um, they, you know, hunted and, you know, gathered things around the marsh. And so they would leave shell mounds there. That's pretty much, that was their idea of the garbage dump. So, you know, very sustainable garbage dump. Um, <laughs> and then in 1776, the Spanish missionaries came and they also set up um, the, the Presidio itself as being, you know, a military base. Um, and then later on, it was taken over by Mexico. Um, and then after that, the United States. And so it, it became a military base from 1776 on. And so the marsh gradually became a dump. And so if you go back through the history, you can see the different kinds of trash that there were over the different eras. So everything from broken up pottery to, you know, old old um, uniform scraps to old munitions, and then eventually cow corpses. For some reason, I'm still wondering why the cow corpses. Um, and, then, and then eventually like the ruins from the 1906 earthquake and then also from the International Exposition in 1915. So layers and history of trash in wow. there. And by the time it was filled in, then it became an airfield for the United States military out there. And so they had some different flights coming from there. A couple of them were historic. And then by the time the military was done, then it was a parking lot. And so wow. we have this parking lot. In 1994, the military sells Chrissy Field um, and, and the rest of the Presidio to the National Park Service for a dollar. It's symbolic. And... Um, and then we got some donors, I guess they got donors, and they decided they were going to restore this marsh. So when I joined in 1999, they had already excavated out the marsh and taken out all of the trash, but it was just a gigantic sand pit. And we spent, well, at least when I when I arrived, we were still doing the planting. And so we planted plants all around the marsh, native plants, and then also over the dunes that had been reconstructed from, from where the army had destroyed them. And about two months later, I came back one day 
and it had been the, the water had been allowed to flow in from both the San Francisco Bay and from the local watershed. And so suddenly, instead of the sand pit, it's water, water, water everywhere. And That's it was amazing. It was utterly breathtaking. And so after we were done with all of the planting, then we spent you know years even to this day weeding. Or there was this one horrible time where they'd also um, resurrected the historic airfield, and so. There had been this duff raining down from the airfield where they'd planted the the, um, the fescue. And so it was raining duff all over our plants. And so we had to like dig them out for a long time. <laughs> it was a battle. Like there were volunteers going, oh my God, it's the duff again. And so we're all mad at the duff. Um, and then weeding. And then we eventually went to other sites within the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. Um, and, you know, sometimes picking up trash, but usually weeding and... I'm trying to think about what other kinds of duties we do. Um, I had some summer internships where we were doing line point traffic monitoring or quadrant monitoring so that we could look and see how many, like what percentage of the plants were still alive, or what percentage they were covering and get all the data that way. So a lot of data collection. Um, and yeah, years later, here we still are. <laughs> that is an amazing story. How fun to see it right from the beginning as a sandpit after all that history and all that exchange of hands and then now to put love and energy into it over so many years and see it how it is now and to be there still caring for it, still pulling weeds and maintaining. That must feel so good, must feel so amazing to look at a site that you've restored and and to see what's been done and what what's been achieved. How does that feel when you look at a site that you've been working on all these years? I can honestly say every single time I go back to Chrissy Field, even if it's like every single day I go back, I fall in love with it even more. Oh. And and whenever I'm out there, it feels like I'm saying hi to old friends. Like I'll walk among the plants and maybe I didn't plant the exact plant I'm walking by, but, but I feel like because I've seen them grow, because I remember when we planted them, I remember how like I remember our first big planting was we were planting over the shell mound that had been left behind because there were historic shell mounds that we didn't want to excavate out of respect for the Olona heritage. And so one of the days we planted the native plants on top of one of the shell mounds that I found out later. And I still walk back by there and and the plants are waving in the breeze and it just feels like coming home every single time I'm out there. Yeah, it's special to me. I feel protective of that place. And the other thing is that San Francisco has gone through a lot of changes in rent. And so a lot of those of us who grew up here can't afford to live here anymore. And I know that if I weren't living with my family, I wouldn't be able to live here either. And so people leave for different reasons. And my, some of my family members have been like, you know, yeah, I might as well leave. But I can't because by being at Chrissy Field, it feels like this is my, like, it's my roots on a level that I can't really explain very well. But because I planted something and cared for something here, I really can't leave this place because I feel like I planted here too, in a way. Yeah, that makes me feel emotional. That's really a special thing, isn't it? Wow. And so you talked about all the information, all the data, all the processes that are going on that you have to keep track of with, uh, with your restoration work. And I'm wondering what role nature journaling plays in like for you keeping all those records. So nature journaling is well, it, okay. When I when I started when I started learning from Jack, and then I realized that 
that that's how I could apply it because I wanted to make nature journaling really, really relevant to my life. And at first I was just thinking of garden work, but when it clicked for me to use that for restoration, it felt like, ah, oh, this is the missing piece. This is what makes sense. Um, because at first it was going to be about keeping records and like letting myself really sink into the questions of the place and understanding the ecosystem better. But I also noticed that it's a way of keeping a little bit of the magic of the field with me when I go home mm. and, and falling in love with it over and over again. And also because I think probably myself and other people come, come to this thinking where how could you go to the same place over and over again and, and, you know, not get bored, but by keeping a regular record, I've realized that it is possible that there's always something new to see, or there's always questions that go deeper. And so I've been keeping records of this one particular place I work right now, which is Battery East, um, since I want to say February of this year, when I got to come back um, more long term. And it's October now, and I still have so many questions. And and it hasn't gotten boring for me. And it's made me better at being a restorationist because it will make me think about processes in a way I didn't before. Uh, so like, for example, um, growing up, there was a lot more rain during this particular season. And so I got used to the rainy season as being the time that you plant the plants, um, which makes sense. But then I hadn't really thought of the weeding as having much of a schedule. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm keeping notes, I'm realizing just how much of a schedule there really is. Um, so like the, there's bird nesting season and that starts in March and it ends in August. And I didn't realize until this year that that really means that we can't be pulling up Cape Ivy, which is our, which is our main thing that we have to go after. Um, we can't be pulling it up during that time period because it entangles itself in the shrubs where the birds nest because the birds don't just nest in the trees. But I wouldn't have been able to really think about those connections if I hadn't been writing it down. And so then I would notice, you know, we're going after the poison hemlock at certain times, but a lot of times when we're going after weeds, it's after they've already flowered and are begin beginning to produce seeds. But by keeping notes of when the seedlings come up, then I catch myself thinking, why not go after these plants when they're just seedlings and save ourselves a ton of work? But then I wouldn't be able to remember when the seedlings were coming up if I hadn't written it down. So it makes me a much better restorationist and planner. It helps me notice patterns better. And then it also like I can write down the discoveries and it's concrete in my mind when they happened and what happened. Those are such interesting observations that that about the bird nesting and how you don't want to displace them by moving the weeds. That is such important information. Wow. And so I was hearing you talk on Marley's show about the different things you include in your journal when you're doing nature journaling at a restoration site and you talked about maps and landscapes and species inventories and weed inventories such a rich amazing array of things that you can put down and that are useful in your situation it's it's been so much fun a lot of it has been taking lessons that jack or other teachers have taught me um and and just finding new ways to apply them or make them work. And I feel like, I feel like there's still so many more tools I need to, I need to learn and apply. Um, so, so like, for example, um, there was this one particular Sunday and I, and I think I've told the story before, but, but I'm going to say it again, because it was that fun where Melinda was teaching us different ways of recording information about leaves. And one of the cool things that she showed us was how to paint a leaf and then press it down into our journal so that we can make a print of it. And Immediately, that made me think, oh, this is going to make it so much easier to render leaves that are really complicated, ones mm. that have lots of like little um, leaflets on them. And, and my main example with that one would be poison hemlock. 
And so, and so it helps me to be able to print like that. But then, but then I kind of, I wound up taking it a step further on a particular day when for some reason, maybe it was the humidity, maybe it was the leaf itself, the print wasn't working. So I painted the negative space, but I would never have thought of that if Melinda hadn't taught us the first step about making a print and about different ways of capturing that information or about like the way that Amy Schlesser talks about doing diagrams and the way that you can make any picture into a diagram and that immediately makes it more informational and and more useful and so and so it's been just it's almost been like an easter egg hunt of finding different tools that different teachers use and then like how am i going to work this into my kit um and i feel like i'm only just scraping the beginning of it i feel like there's so much more i've got to do <laughs> that's amazing i'm interested because i have a friend who also works a lot with weeds and she said that when she looks at a landscape often people will say oh there's a beautiful landscape but because her eye is trained to weeds she just sees it as a weedy landscape. And I'm wondering if your knowledge of weeds sort of spoils your view sometimes, or if you, how does it feel when you look at a landscape and you know that that's a weed, whereas someone else might just see nature, but you see weeds. I don't know if that happens to you as well. It does. And I feel, I feel kind of bad. I feel like I'm being kind of a killjoy because, <laughs> because, you know, we'll be walking around the landscape and people will say, oh, look how beautiful that is. And I'll be like, oh, that's the poison hemlock. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll like, you know, wring my hands menacingly at the plant and, you know, give it the evil eye. And, and I think that people are very nice to me, but I think that people secretly are going like, okay, crazy fat person. <laughs> um, so I don't want to be a killjoy. So I try to remember that I'm talking about plants and not just you know i'm talking about a living creature a living you know a living being so i try really hard to be more respectful but it's difficult when when everything in me just wants to pull them out yes yeah. <laughs> so i'm thinking i need to maybe go backwards in my practice and look at some of the plants that i think of as being weeds and i started doing this but i think i need to really dedicate to doing this and start drawing them in their natural habitat and then mm. also and also looking back about all of the ways that they're used not only for people but also you know which pollinators love them what their part is in their ecosystem where they live and and okay this is oh this is how do i explain so okay so eucalyptus you know eucalyptus because they grow in australia that, and that's where they that's where they're from and so we have a lot of eucalyptus here mm. and even though it's not where they're from a lot of us like Recently, I want to say like a year and a half ago, I learned that the eucalyptus have begun being more adapted into the landscape by some of the by some of our local plants and animals. So I've learned that there's a ton of pollinators that seem to really love them. I've learned that red-tailed hawks prefer the vantage point on top of them because they grow taller than the other trees in the area. And so and then there's this one particular plant poison oak which i actually happen to love and poison oak treats eucalyptus like it's bff and just like hugs it and is going yeah let's climb <laughs> and and so this plant that i was taught for so long is like not so great for our landscapes because of some of the effects that like it has it has kind of an allelopathic effect um where where that lovely essential oil that we love to put and you know smell it kind of coats the sand where i live mm. and so as a result water cannot percolate um which is a great you know, adaptation for the eucalyptus to survive. And I'm, and one thing I would love to do is to go to Australia and see what other plants grow alongside the eucalyptus, um, because I'm sure that the plants there have adapted to the eucalyptuses, um, but, but the ones here haven't. Mm. And so it makes kind of an interesting thing, because on the one hand, we're told, you know, not so great, but then on the other hand, we see how our landscape is kind of embracing the eucalyptus. Um, and so I want to do that with all of the plants that I think of as being so-called weeds, because 
well, okay, so to quote somebody very dear to me, a weed is just a plant out of place. And so it doesn't mean that the weeds themselves are bad. They're just, it's about balance, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. My favorite weed story is that there's a there's a plant here that uh, I'm not exactly sure where it's native to, maybe somewhere in South America. It's called We call it lantana. Do you have lantana where you are? As an ornamental, yeah. Okay. So here it's absolutely out of control. And um, I used to live on a mountain near here and there was a lot of accidents, road accidents on this mountain because it's very windy and people drive too fast. And the lantana is so thick up there. <laughs> that we heard of someone who had gone off the road. Her car had completely gone off the road and she, she's, she survived. <laughs> the lantana caught her car. It was so thick <laughs> that she was uh, recovered. She's, a, she's fine because of the lantana. And I always think like everyone around here has this, you know, reaction to the lantana. Oh, it's terrible. It's choking the landscape. But for this one person, I bet she has a love of lantana for the rest of her life. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is beautiful. I love that she has that story. <laughs> so I wonder, you had this lovely story of how you got into habitat restoration, and I'm wondering about how someone else listening might start to get involved. Are there ways that, uh, are there entry points that are easy for people to get involved in restoration work? There's different organizations. I think that that will tend to help more. So like, for example, here in the United States, I'm told that the Fish and Wildlife Service might have some, I think that on the website, there's some kind of a form for volunteers that you can fill out and you can specifically note your interest in restoration work. Then there's other organizations like Audubon and they're definitely all about doing the restoration work to make better habitats for the birds. Um, I was lucky I got involved through kind of a collaboration between the National Park Service, um, the Golden Gate National Parks Conservancy, and uh, the Presidio Trust. And so I think, um, and I also think that there might be projects listed on iNaturalist. Okay. So part of it is looking at different organizations, especially really well-established ones, and then seeing what they have to offer. Then also getting the word out amongst friends, especially friends who are in the natural field, um, because then they'll come to you when they hear about things. I know I was really lucky because I had that one mentor who, who did that. Oh, also, if there are people who are taking classes that are specifically about naturalist nature stuff, then they can ask their teachers and their teachers might be able to have resources as well, because hopefully they've been around long enough to collect resources. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. So you know so much about botany and plants and I'm wondering if you learned all this on the job or how you gathered all this scientific knowledge about plants okay so it was it was um okay it was in a, a few different ways one of them was definitely learning a ton of plants um on the job when I was doing the restoration um I had a better memory back then than I do now. And so back then I was one of those really, really annoying kids who liked to cram my head full of knowledge and then like spit out names. So, you know, people would be talking about a plant and I'm like, oh, you mean by Caris pilularis? And, you know, or, you know, we're going to plant these dune strawberries. Oh, Fragaria chiloensis? And so I was one of those really, really annoying kids. Um, and so I took great pleasure in memorizing as many Latin names as I could and then looking them up later to figure out what they meant. Um, because I was kind of a knowledge glutton. And so that was all of the native plants. 
Then I went to UC Santa Cruz. And interestingly, Marley was the one who began helping me learn about plant families. Um, Because I hadn't known much about them. And so he and I were working together in this garden on campus. He was... He was the leader of the garden and I was, again, being annoying. But this time I was the annoying person who was like, give me a job, give me a job, give me stuff to do. And so Marley did. And then I kept annoying him. And then he said, "Okay, now I'm going to tell you about the plant families. And so he explained about how the families that we eat, um, like about how melons and squashes are in cucurbitaceae, which is one of his favorites, um, about about Fabaceae. Like he talked about all of his favorite ones, the um, Brassicaceae. Um, which is the kale, the kohlrabi, the broccoli, the cauliflower, all of that. And so he got me started on that. And then I went down a rabbit hole and began making um, diagrams for myself. And then went up taking ethnobotany um, the year afterwards with um, this amazing mentor we both had named Steve Gleesman, who is really into agroecology. So I took that class as well. Um, but wow. ethnobotany was amazing because we got to learn about families, plant families. We got to learn about their uses in the world. We got to have lab where we would look inside of the flowers. And then our final project um, was that we had to gather um, specimens from 25 different families to present. And he gave us three options. He said, you can either you can either do plant pressings where you gather the physical specimens and then press them. You can do photos where you take pictures of all of the different necessary parts. So not just, you know, one picture of the outside of the plant, but also a close up of the flower and then a dissection of the flower. So you can see the working parts Um, or third option. You can draw them. And he said to us that if we drew them, it was a good likelihood that we'd remember better than any other way, because then you have to actually get involved. And so being an annoying botanist, I drew them (laughs) Um, and it took me months. Um, I mean, whatever time we had. And it took me usually more than one flower um, because it takes a really long time to draw them. And it made me happy. And then I went to Costa Rica, made signs um, for their for their garden. That's a whole other thing. And then so after college, I got lucky. I got to become a seasonal park ranger um, for just a little while um, in the Presidio. So I got to do interpretation. But the weird thing is that where I was working, they said that to have a competitive advantage, I had to be enrolled in classes as well. I had to be carrying at least 10 credits as a student um, for a competitive advantage, because if you don't have your master's, then you can't really get a full-time position. And I only had an undergraduate degree. And so I took classes at the local um, community college. And I was thinking, well, why not try to do that in at least the field I'm interested in, because they didn't care what kind of classes you took. So I decided to take um fall and winter ornamentals followed by spring and summer ones or at least spring ones um and what was fun about that is that in the two communities i'd been part of so far which is to say um native plant community and then gardening community none of them really thought very much about ornamentals except for you know them being weeds or wastes of space and so i thought i want to learn these because specifically it's not something that any of the other groups are talking about and i'd like a bit of an edge (laughs) um but also because then that way I can walk down the street and know exactly which street trees I'm looking at. Um, and that was eye-opening. That was really yeah. eye-opening to do that. Because then a lot of the ones will come from different regions of the world. And so then you begin to see patterns as you're looking at them. And you begin to wonder about the environment that they come from and the ecosystem. And I have questions about all of these. So. <laughs> and that led you to 
be the perfect person to to do the workshop series that you did which was called plant families in our food can you talk about this amazing workshop series that you did Thank oh yeah I will and thank you for asking me because that was fun. <laughs> okay so so that one that one I have to thank specifically my two friends Jasmine and Heather. Um, I, there were other people who expressed interest as well, but specifically Jasmine and Heather um, said that they that like plants looked cool, but that it's a bit intimidating because of all of the different. Well, first of all, the vocabulary. Botanists have a habit of having way too much vocabulary for things, and I think they're only outdone by like either the mycologists or the moss people, <laughs> you know, it's one of those annoying things. And so um, combo of the vocabulary and all of the plant families. And so because they were interested and because I'm passionate, I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe this thing might happen. It might be fun. Um, and then what else? And then it wound up just being fun, to, like just trying to decide which families to do. Um I've got made fun of later on by one of my supervisors that I chose the easy families. Oh. <laughs> um, I chose eight families and I'm currently creating series two, but these ones are a bit harder to find. Um, oh, how exciting. To find specimens <laughs> of. So the idea with that was to combine it with nature journaling. So first we look at three different specimens from the family in question and we draw them. Um, and then we add words and numbers to our pictures. And then we get to find out which family it is. So that way people can kind of begin to see in advance patterns that they themselves notice, because I want people to start with what they observe instead of just being, you know, having all of this knowledge crammed into their heads. Um, and so then we look at, you know, the textbook example of what, you know, the flower looks like and all the flower parts. And then we see how this particular family expresses that because it'll oftentimes look very different than what's in the book, depending on whatever family we're looking at. So for example, a diagram in the book might just have two stamens, the parts that make the pollen. Whereas, um, like if you're looking at rosaceae, the rose family, it has a ton of stamens. And yes. so it helps to kind of know how that varies. Um, and then we look at like what family, like, sorry, what members of the family are things that we like to eat because it's always good to connect things to like <laughs> what you know and what's more important than what we eat. <laughs> I love food. Yeah. And, and then it's kind of fun just to see who relates to each other. And then the part that people seem to really like, and Melinda helped me inspire, like helped inspire me to do this, was the spot the blank family member. So, um, so like spot the rosaceae, and then you get three choices, and then you have to choose which one is that family, just so you can kind of test your knowledge. Um, and the idea was to make it fun and playful and kind of make it easier for people to explore and look for patterns instead of having to memorize facts. Yes, patterns is such an important thing when recognizing plant families. And I love that you did that comparison with the textbook flower because flowers vary so much and sometimes it can be hard to even see the parts that match the textbook. Uh, I, love, I loved the way you did it and you just have such a gentle, loving teaching style. It was, it's such a good series. Thank you. And I feel I feel really, really lucky for the participants that I had because they were kind. They had their own experiences that they brought to the class, which were really fun to hear about. They helped shape how we did the class. And on top of that, they were so patient because there were a few times in the series where I'd break off to begin ranting about either Cape Ivy or about poison <laughs> hemlock. And they were very patient with me or the time I ranted about bracts and grasses. Oh, <laughs> they have they have their yeah, they're the best because they have amazing patience to deal with that. And that's why I'm called the bad botanist. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so sweet. I love that you have become like the 
the person who brings the community together. So as well as plant families in our foods, you are very well known for running Pencil Miles and Chill, which is your way of gathering the community together and keeping everyone connected. And I'd love for you to talk about that as well and and what happens in those sessions. I would love to. Uh, Okay, so first I'm going to describe what happens in the sessions and then I'll talk a bit about the history because I have to share credit with a lot of other people who got us here. Um, So, okay, so what happens in the sessions is it's it's meant to be as low-key as possible. There's like, there's no homework, there's no instruction. It pretty much is an online hangout where people get together. They can either work in their nature journals, um, finishing up things, starting new things, whatever they want to do. Some people don't even work in their nature journals. Like we've had people who've been there who are knitting or making dinner um, and they and they just kind of have the sound on so that they can hear other people. Um, and th- the main idea is for people to be able to hang out with each other um, because it, it started during the last year of the pandemic and it's the acknowledgement that COVID is very lonely, that it's very lonely to have to be in isolation and to give people a chance to hang out with each other. So we can share adventures about our nature journaling, or we can share struggles and be kind of like, hey, you know, I don't know how to draw X, Y, Z, or, you know, what does this particular thing mean that everybody keeps talking about? And then we can kind of talk about it. And and we a lot of times we talk about books because a lot of us are book addicts and <laughs> we, we have a coveted book list, so-called, we, we like to joke and call it coveted. But people, <laughs> after a while, people began naming so many books that that um, Janai started a Google document where we like enter in books and then we write down um, comments about books that we like so that, that way people can kind of see almost like a discussion or a dialogue or just see what, like, who likes these Amazing. books. And like the most popular book on there is um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. So, so it's kind of fun. Um, and and then our only rule in our group is to be kind to each other mm. um, because, well, one thing that Jack does that I really appreciate in his groups is that he tries to bring people together from everywhere. And he and he makes it really clear that we don't talk about politics because we know that that can be very divisive. And so it's the same way in Pencil Miles and Chill is that we know that everybody comes from different backgrounds um, in terms of our nature journaling. Um, in terms of our art, because art can be sometimes an area where a lot of us feel really self-conscious, and in terms of our life experiences, and so it's the reminder to be kind to each other um, when we're talking. And sometimes we wind up, sometimes we can go into really personal subjects if that's what people are needing support with. So that's that's sort of what Pencil Miles and Chill is about. But I actually I'm not the one who really started it. Um, that credit goes to my wonderful friends Gargi and Akshay, who at the beginning of the pandemic um, they had started. I think it was one of those Google spreadsheets. And so it was pretty much like online hangout party and they were having people get together so that, you know, people could just draw together and it's, and that way, even though we're all online, it's almost like sitting in the same room. And then that evolved so that um, it became people saying, Oh, I'm interested in this subject. Um, We don't have a class on this. And then somebody else might say, Oh, I'm going to teach about this. And then you'd have people signing up. So, so like we had Miriam teaching at one point about fire and fire sounds. That was amazing. And, Mm -hmm. and then Kate talked about powers of 10 at one point. We watched that one, I think it was like a 1977 video where, where we, we, you know, powers of 10 zooming in and then powers of 10 zooming out. Um, So getting as small as like the atoms and then getting as big as, you know, galaxies and and then playing with that concept within our nature journals um and so that was really a rich experience and then um around i want to say june or july people got overwhelmed and busy just because 
that's just how things go. And I had some pages in my nature journal that I hadn't finished up. And so Brian Higginbotham had been asking us um, as part of the Great Valley Nature Journal Club to write down our intentions for July. And so I wanted to finish these pages and I thought, oh, it'd be cool like if we had to hang out like the ones that Gargi and Akshay did. And so I invited people, um, I gave people two options and then everybody was kind of split. So I'm like, okay, fine, both days. You know, one was a Friday, one was a Saturday. <laughs> and I have social anxiety. So I was like, okay, here goes. Let it, it was done. Everybody had fun. I was, boom, we're done. And then Akshay wrote to me on Facebook and said, hey, Vea, would you consider doing this again regularly? <laughs> <laughs> and then Jack Laws is like, hey, I agree with Akshay. Would you consider doing this again regularly? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to think about this. And then um, we had our class with Brian again. And Brian's like, still, everybody, Vey's doing this every week. <laughs> and I'm like, Brian, You were why? organized into it. <laughs> But I wasn't going to like, I wasn't going to let Brian down. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm doing this every week. And it wound up being a really good growing experience because... It's challenged my social anxiety, but more important than that, it's been something that people really have needed um, because I realized that it's not just isolation during COVID, but there's a lot of people, I've heard stories, people talking about this um, in a lot of different venues. A lot of people are isolated even when it's not COVID. So, so this yeah. winds up being very special. Um, for people. And so I want to continue this because it's something people need. But I also want to encourage people that if if the times I have don't work, or just if people want to do this, anybody can start a pencil miles and chill group. Anybody can. This is not just me. Um, also, the name came from Akshay. Akshay was the one who came up with the name. It's, <laughs> it's like, cute. <laughs> I think it's really cute. He gave us, he, he, he like named out three options and I thought that was the cutest. So <laughs> I, I love that you're the community bringer together and you've got saying social anxiety and you're just doing it anyway. <laughs> What, how did you get through that? How did you get through? I guess, I mean, this community just is so loving and so ready to support each other and, Maybe that's how you get got through it. But how did you overcome those anxieties and, and make it something that's replenishing instead of draining? Well, definitely, definitely people in the community. That's especially people who are regulars. In the, I mean, I'm not going to be able to remember everybody and I apologize in advance, but there's definitely like shout outs I want to give. Regulars like Linda Napier and Candace Ballantine, also known as Candace the Cotty Wappler. Um, <laughs> an affectionate nickname, um, and Terry, and then Heather, and Jasmine, like especially Jasmine, and, and Janai, and, uh, and then Leslie, um, and, and just a whole bunch of people were kind, and they were understanding, and there were times where I vented about being really self-conscious, and, and Anne Chadwick, there were times I vented about being super self-conscious, and these folks who became my friends were kind, and they were understanding, And there were times where they offered to to help me co-host or there were times like I remember Amy Shemansky at one point hosted for me when I couldn't be there because it was my birthday. And so these folks were generous and kind and stepped in and also were understanding when I acted like a like totally, totally like twitchy and weird and, and babbly. Um, and so there was that like 
the people most of all. But then I also spent a lot of time looking up like articles online about how to have normal conversations and how to run groups. And <laughs> and then I talked to Heather a lot. Um, Heather and I have had a lot of really good discussions and she was telling me about um, about different um, like different guidelines that are in different groups that she's been part of. And so she and I, she helped me come up with, with like mission statements and guidelines for how we're going to be kind to each other. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> that's that is, pretty much now. <laughs> that's beautiful. And speaking about kindness and community, and you mentioned your birthday, can you talk about this beautiful tradition that's sprung up around your birthday in this, in this community? I just love it so much. Now that one, I got to thank Jack for that one, because Jack's the one who grabbed that and like made it so that other people could take part and made it so that it was going to be like just a, a signature thing that our community does. Um, so with that, okay, so I have this birthday tradition where every year on my birthday, I go out to the beach and I clean it. Um, although, yeah, like if the beaches are already clean, then I might choose other places. But the idea is to go out and do an act of service or stewardship. Um, and that started when I was 16 and, um, the way that went was that, okay, so I was, I was turning 16 and my mom, my dad, and my godmother wanted to give me a sweet 16 birthday party, but I get kind of self-conscious about these things. Um, I think a lot of us deal with like imposter syndrome and I got, and I get self-conscious about the idea that I'd be having a birthday and I would feel like that's kind of self-centered of me. I, I mean, it's not necessarily, and I'm not, you know, dissing any birthday parties. It's just that I'm, I get self-conscious. And so um, they asked me what I wanted to do for my birthday after, you know, a while of me just kind of sitting there kind of like trying to go in my shell. And so I said, let's go clean the beach. Because at that point, wow. I'd already fallen in love with restoration work. And I'd done beach cleanups before with my school when they had the thing. And so they at first were kind of like, are you sure about that? And we talked, we negotiated. They were like, okay, but you got to like have a cake afterwards because people aren't going to want to come out if there's not a cake. <laughs> And, and then finally they agreed and like, fine, hippie child, we'll do this for you. <laughs> and then um, there were some gaps in certain years, but it became kind of a thing. So that's what I like to do every year on my birthday. Um, and so um, when, when I was going to do it again this year, it fell on a pencil miles and chill day. And so Amy Shemansky very kindly um, offered to host that day. And I was letting people know at the end of one of Jack's classes so that people wouldn't be surprised if I wasn't there and, you know, that they would treat Amy Shemansky with, you know, love and kindness. And so Jack wanted to know what I was doing that I wasn't. Um, and so I told him about it. And then he's like, I want to do that, too. And and then it just kind of became a thing. And so also, if if a person's birthday is on that day, even if we're not all together, we can still go out and honor each other by doing a bit of active service for every for each other on on each other's birthday. So like recently our friend Catherine Sky had a birthday and Jack went out to this one um, river that's nearby his home and with a big trash bag because he, that river I guess regularly carries trash out um, and so he sees it getting filled with trash all the time and so he went out there and got a huge bag of of trash and he did the same thing on my birthday last year with with his two amazing daughters the adventure girls Amelia and Carolyn and they had like the most adorable pictures of them with their gloves and they had huge bags of trash. Amazing. So it's like, why not? And then plus you'll be like honoring somebody who you love and you'll be making the earth a better place in their honor. And so. That is just beautiful. I love that tradition. I love that you do that on your birthday. And I love that as a gift to someone else, you can clean up the earth to honor their birthday too. It, this community just is constantly constantly 
just filling my heart with with the way they are, with the love and the kindness and the generosity that, that pours out of this community. Me too. Like, see, that's the thing is that Jack can, like, Jack can say, let's do this, let's try this. But every single person who goes out and makes it happen, they're the ones who make this a reality. And there have been so many people who have taken pictures of the work that they've done or have talked about it and have shared their adventures with going out and cleaning things. And the more and more we share it, then the more and more we make this a value that everybody shares together. And it, it's easier to do it when you know that other people are going to be backing you up. So it's like the kindness in this community continues to grow and feed itself and grow. And I am with you on that. This community, this community fills my heart too and makes me want to do better. Uh, and I'm wondering about, because there's been so much connection that's been made through the internet, across countries, across, across time zones, because everyone's been separated and things are beginning to change now and to open up a little bit. And I'm wondering about your thoughts on that, about what's, what is going to change when things open up again and what we need to hold on to in terms of connecting through these extra channels that have been developed? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think, okay, so I think that as things open up, there'll be people spending less time online and more time in person, at least for a lot of people. Um, but then there might, there might be people, though, who still need the online support, especially, I know that we have a lot more Nature Journal clubs opening up, which is wonderful. But I don't forget that there's also a lot of places that don't have nature clubs and there are still people who feel very alone out there. And so I think that a lot of us still need online support, but especially people who feel isolated where they are. And so I think we should keep using our connections with each other to help people until they're able to form their communities or until they're able to find each other in person. Um, and also to keep the connection with online so that that way, instead of just going and doing something local, we can keep talking to each other. Like the way that you and I are talking and you're in Australia and I'm over here in the United States, but we're still talking, we're still connected. And I want to keep that so much. I don't want to lose touch. And, and, and the same way where a lot of us who have been online for the past year have made some, sometimes some of us have made even our closest friendships Absolutely. with people who, yeah, yeah. With people who live on the other side of the world. So, so I hope that we can keep that. And, it's going to, my friend Candace was saying that she thinks it's going to require both. And I can imagine it taking a really big balancing act to figure out how that's going to work. Um, so maybe, maybe that will mean that there'll be less online classes, but that the ones that we have will still be consistent and will still be really, really quality. So mm -hmm. like, instead of having, like, I know that, for example, Brian and Melinda um, have been doing the entire pandemic have been doing classes every single in, in Brian's case Saturday and in Melinda's case Sunday but then recently they've kind of changed their schedule a bit so that Brian will do it every two weeks um, and I think Melinda will do it every two or three and the thing though is that that's fine it's because they they realized that there were other things that they needed to do so Brian has has to do more things with the kids and Melinda needs to take more time with her family and the thing though is that because they're consistent even like even if it's every two weeks instead of every week we'll still consistently show up and we'll value that time even more. Yes. Um, and so that's their way of finding the balance for what they need. And I think because we know not to abandon the connections we've made with people online, we're going to keep through that too. And we're going to keep true to that. Mm. Mm. And also, also recognizing that we don't have to do everything that there's, and especially because online, sometimes it felt like there was kind of an avalanche of different classes that were being yes. offered. <laughs> I know I haven't even got through a quarter of the ones I want to do, 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I know we, we, I'm sure that a lot of us can be really hard on ourselves, but we don't have to be. It's okay that we didn't get to do everything. Um, it's still gonna, either it's still gonna be there, or if not, then we can just, we can celebrate the connections that we made. And I guess that's the thing I think that we're gonna be kind of balancing is how to keep the connections in, in you know, face-to-face -face life versus screen-to-face life, but hoping to try to keep both. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think celebrating the connections is where it's at. And there have been some amazing relationships and ties that have developed. And I'm grateful for that every single day that we have this ability to, to have video calls, to have this ability to build relationships, you know, on opposite sides of the world. It's, it's, it's thrilling and amazing. And I'm so grateful for that. Me too. And you just made me think of something too. One thing that I think is going to definitely grow, um, speaking of online stuff, I think, no, I'm sure that the International Nature Journaling Week is going to grow every year. Because I love the way that you organize it so that that way there's two classes. It's not overwhelming. It's perfect because, because you get two opportunities to be with people. And so like you can take a class at one point and then spend like the rest of your day excited about the next one that's going to come. <laughs> and, and you gather people from all over the world together. And I think that where you create is a haven for people because, because there'll be people in different places where they don't have the in-person connections, but because you open it up to everybody in the world. I can only see that growing as more and more people are looking for, you know, how to fit in or how to find support. And I feel like you're like what you've organized is going to become a place where people gather together to find that support. And so and so I hope that like as many of us as possible can support you and what you do and, and make it so that it's like as many hands as possible helping you. The, uh, well, last year, this year was bigger than last year, and that was because there were so many helpers so many people volunteering their time and energy and you were just so generous with your time as moderator you I want to say you are an amazing moderator you preempt what the speaker needs you're in there with links before the person has even asked for them you're incredible Eva. you you're an incredible generous magical moderator <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get a little enthusiastic, so I'm, I'm glad that it was helpful. <laughs> it was amazing. It was like you were reading my mind. It was so good. <laughs> I was just really, really, really happy to be helping you because you're the one who puts all of this together. You do all of the work. So anytime, like, and I'm sure that there's other people like me, but anytime we see somebody who's doing all of that and we're like, can we help you? Can we help? Can we help like take the load off? And also, can we get the privilege of working next to you? Oh, so, you're so generous. You're just amazing. <laughs> I was just really happy to work with you. Oh, I wanted to ask you, so the Nature Journal community, because of John Mueller's, has these two amazing triads that we use. We talk all the time about the prompts, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, and the other triad, words, pictures, and numbers. And I want to talk a little about that, if that's okay. Yeah, totally. So we keep returning to these prompts. I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, they're just so useful. They're just so, uh, they're just a wonderful way to start and break into a page. I'm wondering the value for you of those three prompts. Why are they so powerful and useful? What I like about them is that they offer, for me, they offer kind of an organized way to approach something when sometimes, like when you go out into nature or when you're in in a place with lots of different stimulus, it feels a little bit like having a fire hose coming at you. Yeah. 
And I get a little overwhelmed with figuring out how to sort out all of the different things that I'm seeing. And so having those kinds of, of, of structures, I guess, helps me to be able to process and get less overwhelmed. And so I think that like they kind of, it's, I've seen it explained before as, you know, I notice being about the observations or about the dot, dot, dot in a sentence, the, I wonder being about the curiosity and, and sort of like the question mark in a sentence. And then the, it reminds me of being about the connections or the exclamation point. And so having those, just having the different lenses to try on, for me, that really, really helps. I like, I like being able to be given a place for all of the questions because that's like, that's my juice right there. I love the questions. <laughs> Tell me about that. Tell me what um, lights you up about questioning, generating just hundreds of questions. It feels like whenever I do it, that a new branch in my brain suddenly opens up <laughs> because because it invites like it just opens up my thinking. It invites it, it invites me to I don't tend to follow questions in a single line. It's almost like how do I explain? Ah, OK, so with the fam with the carrot family, um, it's called umbelliferae because they have umbels of umbels. So you have one um, one stem, but then it explodes into more stems, oh, wow. and then and then another stem, and then explodes into yet more stems. And that's how it feels like when I'm looking at questions: is that the question doesn't lead to another question or to one idea; it leads to several. It's like an explosion of ideas each time, and it just makes me feel very alive when I have all of these questions, <laughs> because then it means I can keep exploring, and then I can go down the rabbit holes. And I'm really fond of rabbit holes, and I'm babbling, <laughs> but yeah. Um, that's why I love the questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. And do you know, it made me smile because I, um, I've always wondered about the value or the usefulness of the prompt it reminds me of. And then I even admitted this to Jack during uh, International Nature Journaling Week when he was teaching about that particular subject. And, and he, his class really made me get it. It made me understand yeah, this is the way we can use that prompt. And I'm wondering about that for you, about the usefulness of It Reminds Me Of. Oh, definitely. Um, actually, I, um, we were just talking about that today with Rebecca, and she was saying one thing that she took from Jack is that is that when you have the It Reminds Me Of, then you're looking at something that might be new and adding it to something familiar. Mm. And so you're connecting new stories with stories that are already in your mind and it makes it easier to remember it that way. Mm. Uh, and so I agree with that. It, it's a way of learning and really retaining what I learned. But the biggest thing for me is that, mm, how do I say? Okay, first of all, I, I don't mind saying this because I'm fairly open about this kind of thing, but it's kind of no secret that I've had kind of some challenging times in my life. And even though we're kind of told as a society to kind of smile and pretend that nothing bad is happening, they stick with me. Mm. And I'm still, sometimes it takes a while to find the right way of healing it. And what I've noticed about it reminds me of is that because it gives me permission to dip back into memories, by sheer, I don't know whether it's accident or not, but just by the nature of it, it allows for a bit of healing for me. Mm. It it allows me to process things at a bit of a smaller thing and not everything will remind me of the traumas, but sometimes, sometimes bits and pieces will, but because I'm being reminded of things that aren't so traumatic, then it makes it almost more bite-sized and a little bit more easy to go through memories and to, and to digest them in ways that are less overwhelming for me. 
That's an amazing insight, Ivea. That's really beautiful that it's a safe way of dipping into the past. That's amazing. I feel I feel really lucky for that. And it hasn't it, it's it's with nature, but then it's also mm. been with the community itself. Um, is that being part of this community has wound up helping me heal from a lot mm. of things that were were confounding for me for a lot of years. Mm. Um, and and because I would see how people would act and it would remind me of something from my past or maybe something that I didn't have. And then it would be a piece that suddenly would click together about, oh, this is what healthy actually looks like or what it can actually look like. And then it could help me identify what before wasn't healthy and why it wasn't. And then it becomes easier to create a new habit and think, but this is how that new habit can look. Um, and then and then um, to kind of go back to I noticed for a while there, sometimes that would seem like the one that for a while that would seem like the one that's, that was kind of the most dry. But for me, it's also a way of kind of going back into wise mind that seeing things with beginner's mind. Part of that, though, I, I credit to Marley because he will do this thing where he'll he'll like tell us to really, really dial back our assumptions. And so like, what's a good example? So like at one point he had this hunk of cactus um, that was beginning to grow a little baby on it. And so we were looking at the cactus together and then writing down, like saying as many um I notice this as possible, but he said to pretend that we don't know that this is actually a cactus or even a plant. And so we'd be talking about things. And then I would say, oh, I noticed this about the top of it. And he's like, how do you know that's the top? And then yes. it wasn't just him asking that just to ask it. It wound up being that that wasn't even the top. Um, and so kind of going back to wise mind and going back to a place where you shut off your assumptions and you see what is instead of what if. Mm. And a lot mm. of a lot of things with trauma because they're things that have happened to us then some of it is reality but some of it is also what if because when the emotions kind of take hold and they can they can change our view of how things are actually happening and it can be really really hard at least for me to live in reality when I'm getting overwhelmed and so the I notice is a really great way of returning back to what is and what's happening now and to feel more present yeah that's beautiful and and it I can tell that, and it happens for me as well, that these prompts are so useful, not just for nature and nature journaling, but for interpersonal interactions as well, that, uh, that you can start to notice things and look at, look at a situation with someone, in interaction with someone, and try to notice and wonder and make connections without assumptions and th these things can be really useful for for relationships not just for nature journaling that's really true i think mm -hmm. this community more than any other has taught me what healthy relationships can look like and not as a stagnant thing either but as something that you continually work at and at how to do that work when it seems scary to do it you know yeah with this with a group of safe very loving people is is the way to explore that sort of thing isn't it so I'm um, now words, pictures and numbers is the other triad. And I'm wondering if there's one of those that you feel most comfortable with, that you're most drawn to. So, so I guess the place where I start with, um, where my comfort level starts with is with words. Um, that comes from writing stories and poetry um, when I was younger and, and now still, but that's, and then, just I feel sometimes which is weird because now words sometimes are a bit more difficult for me than they used to be but there's still 
an area of greater comfort than either pictures or numbers. Um, because at least if I stumble through words, I can sort of eventually find the words I'm looking for. I'm used to I'm used to figuring out how to go from lost to sort of okay with my words. I'm I'm used to being lost and then finding a way out, and that maybe is the most important thing is being able to find your way out. With pictures, um, I can do okay with certain pictures, but then I fall into perfectionist mindset where I get mm -hmm. super duper self conscious if it's not absolutely perfect and. And luckily, nature journaling has helped me to get past that, although I still struggle. And with numbers, I didn't think of myself as being particularly smart in the way of numbers. And I feel like numbers involve a lot more creativity than might be than might be obvious, because it's not just looking and counting something. It's what are you going to count? Yes. It's, it's what what how can you measure this thing that you want to measure when you don't have a direct way of doing it. And so those two things involve a lot more creativity than I, than one would think. And so those are quickly becoming growth edges, but also juice because I really like being challenged by those. But yeah, yeah. I would say that words are. Yeah. Your comfort place. I, I feel, I love this community because there are people focusing whose minds and journal pages reflect one or the other. So Rebecca Rolnick is all about words and you're about words and then there's some people who are just really good at the picture side and then there's some people whose brains really work in this way uh, that numbers flow out and they can see numbers all around them uh, like Kate Rudder she's amazing at looking at numbers and creatively uh, expressing numbers and I love watching people do this in different ways because everyone's brain is different and we can learn we can pick up and harvest, as as Melinda says, harvest ideas about how to do it from different people. Definitely. Are, is there is there one language that you prefer over the others? I think my go-to is the pictures because I have loved art for a really long time and that's where I usually start. Uh, and then I would say words is next. Words come next for me and numbers is somewhere is something that I'm working on. I love the idea of using numbers, but I do find it a challenge to see numbers and figure out ways to use them. I measure and I count, but beyond that, I would like to stretch myself. So watching other people whose, whose brains think and see numbers all around them is fascinating to me. I totally agree. And, and I agree also about Kate Rudder being very inspirational with that. Definitely have looked at more than one of her pages and think, she asked that question with the numbers. And then, can I borrow that? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that there's this culture here in this community of borrowing um, or harvesting ideas from each other's journals. And the journal, the journal share is often like the most rewarding, the most rich part of a journal session, isn't it? It really is. I love that part. I try to remember who I get the ideas from, though. Because I love, I love getting to, it feels like, sometimes for me, it feels like if I get to credit somebody for an idea, it's my way of like sending out a little love note to them. Because mm. when, when I get to say their name and say they did this, then I just like, my heart wants to give them a hug. So I, I try really hard to remember where I get the ideas from so that I can hug them with my heart. <laughs> That's beautiful. What, what do you think are the biggest lessons you've learned from nature journaling? Well... I can say that it has re-sparked 
my excitement and enthusiasm. It's this knowledge, or the funny thing about it is it's this knowledge that no knowledge is ever really finished. There's always going to be more questions. And even the thing that you think you know is going to change because, you know, everything's changing around us. There's global warming. There's just geologic time in general. Um, so everything can be seen as being new, although it can connect to the stories you've already learned. And so I've learned that having a beginner mindset can feel deeply comforting in some ways um, to see everything as being new and that having that like a lot of people will act or like at least in my life um i've been know, like i know that people will kind of look down on other people for being dumb and i'm not really fond of of treating people that way ever and for me though it's this feeling that there is no such thing really as dumb because because it's always going to be new <laughs> and i like that i like knowing like i love that feeling that there is really no such thing as being dumb that there's just being really really observant and paying yes. attention um and also the lesson of nature within nature journaling that there's always a way of starting anew and growing again. Like at first it starts out with the journal page that um, that's difficult to draw. Fine, draw it again and again, start again and again. And it's not supposed to be about getting it perfect on the first try because it is about hard work. And it's, it's so validating to know that it's about hard work and that it's not about being born with talent. Um, it's about doing the work over and over and over again. And that it doesn't just apply to nature journaling or to being a nature observer. It applies to relating to people too. Um, it, it's, it's, it's refreshing to know that you can have that. One thing that I really love about nature journaling is that I feel like it's an investment in a lifetime. Like you don't have to do a page and then think it's finished because you're constantly you're, you're sort of investing in discoveries for a lifetime. And so you you might see something in the garden and then that do, that's not the end of it because you're going to see it next year or you're going to see it the year after that. And it, this idea that you're sort of just committing to opening yourself up, that thing of investing in a lifetime's worth of investigating is something I find really special. Me too. I love that part. <laughs> Ivea, thank you so much for being here with me today. I just have enjoyed it so much connecting with you and hearing more about your story. And I can feel that for you, the heart and the love and the kindness is such a big part of your experience of life and experience of this community. And I just want to thank you for sharing that with me and with us as a community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm so happy I got to hang out with you and talk with you. <laughs> someday I'm going to meet you in person and I'm going to give you a huge hug if you want one. absolutely absolutely I can't wait for that <laughs> <laughs> thank you I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ivea she has so much warmth and kindness inside her and it makes sense that her work is centered around restoration giving back caring for the land and repairing what's been damaged Ivea mentioned that Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, is a favourite on the coveted book list of the Pencil Miles and Chill sessions. I want to read a section from the book which is specifically about restoration. Robin writes about how it's possible to fall into a state of environmental despair, but restoration can bring us back from that. She writes, 
Restoration is a powerful antidote to despair. Restoration offers concrete means by which humans can once again enter into positive, creative relationship with the more-than-human world, meeting responsibilities that are simultaneously material and spiritual. It's not enough to grieve. It's not enough to just stop doing bad things. We have enjoyed the feast generously laid out for us by Mother Earth, but now the plates are empty and that dining room is a mess. It's time we start doing the dishes in Mother Earth's kitchen. Doing dishes has gotten a bad rap, but everyone who migrates to the kitchen after a meal knows that's where the laughter happens, the good conversations, the friendships. Doing dishes, like doing restoration, forms relationships. This quote seemed so perfect for Ivea's work, creating a relationship with the earth through her loving care, as well as her being pivotal in creating relationships between people and bringing people together in the Nature Journal community. If you'd like to watch Ivea's wonderful workshop series, Plant Families in Our Foods, and learn more about the plants we eat every day, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can find those videos. Tonight for dinner I ate a zucchini that I grew in the garden and it was such an exciting thing. There's something incredibly special about taking something directly from the garden and into the kitchen. Ivea's workshops are so much fun because knowing about the plant families we interact with every day just deepens this connection even more. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. 